welcome to Bad Reads with Simon and Kira, a podcast about reading, the experience of being a reader, and reading culture. Today, we'll be talking about reading goals. Kira, we're a little way through the year now, so it seems a good time to check in on whether you had any reading New Year's resolutions and how they're going. I don't set reading resolutions, reading goals for the year. I have done in the past, but I have tended to find that they only really work if I already want them to work, or they only really work if they reflect something that I'm already doing, and then it's not actually a goal. I'm just giving myself a gold star for a behavior that I was already enacting. It sort of reminds me my first experience of having reading goals was actually at school. And I went to school in the States and my school participated in this Pizza Hut reading program. And the idea was that it was offered to elementary school, which is primary school students. And you would get vouchers for a free personal pan pizza, which was the worst kind of pizza they did, but it's a free pizza. (laughs) Um, And you got the voucher if you read a certain number of books or a certain number of pages or minutes of reading the actual target was set by the individual teachers and the program was called book it it was actually set up in the mid 80s and it's still going so there are millions of kids who have had their free pizza for reading um yeah and in my case i just i was already a massive bookworm and so it didn't really encourage me apparently according to their data it does encourage a lot of kids to read for me it's just free pizza and my mum who was always super into fitness was pretty horrified (laughs) by this it was like the opposite of what she wanted it just incentivized us into eating pizza yeah and then over the years since then i've done occasionally i did the good reads targets or i've tried to say i should be reading x number of books but i become too keen on the target whatever it is you know whether it's steps or whether it's in my running getting to a certain speed i get really focused on the target and then the actual pleasure from the activity diminishes i know a lot of people love working towards different numerical goals it just completely killed it for me and i got to the stage where if i didn't have my watch on tracking what i was doing it sort of felt like well have i even gone for a run it doesn't count And that was massively dispiriting. So I got rid of the watch, which is a long way of saying I have not got any resolutions. And so I'm doing fine. (laughs) When you set targets, do you ever do the thing that I find myself doing where I start cheating myself and I start thinking, well, I need to read 50 books. So which of these books is shortest? And I think, oh, yeah, I'll read that one. That'll count. Yeah, I got a great uh, Muriel Spark novel last year from the library. Absolutely tiny. And there was a part of me that thought, this will count as a book. (laughs) And I was delighted. It was a good book though. So actually, that's a fine motivation. It worked out well for me. Which one was it? It was The Finishing School. It's a little satirical look at a finishing school in Italy. And the characters are just nicely drawn. They have nice interactions and the whole thing. She's got a really good gift, I think. There's some pretty outlandish things that happen, but we only get a certain amount of depth. I read A Girl of Slender Means, which I think is her as well, last year. And that yeah. sounds not dissimilar, actually. She was a master of um, a cutting observation. I don't think it had occurred to me that setting yourself a goal of the number of books to read in a year was a thing until Goodreads started prompting me. Yeah, when do you think that was? I know exactly when it was, because Goodreads keeps a record of all of your old ones as well, so you can look back and see. Of course it does. So it was... Six years ago, it was 2014. I did it just for the sake of it, really. I didn't I didn't think it would make me read more or less. And actually, I sort of intentionally set a goal that I knew I could hit because I didn't want the disappointment of then not achieving my own pointless goal. But I still found myself looking to read things that I could tick off on the Goodreads list. And occasionally you find, like, somebody has categorised a magazine article or short story as a book in Goodreads. And you think, oh, great, I can tick that off. That's one done straight away. (laughs) Did you become a Goodreads librarian such that you could categorise the things you had read as a book? (laughs) 
That's the ultimate hack, isn't it? You start categorizing. It's the next level. One thing that I'm really bad at, I realised this a little bit after talking to you about books, actually, is when I find a writer that I like, I then just get obsessed with reading all of their works. I'm very bad at branching out into other topics. And you've said before how you push yourself to read books from different cultures or areas or different types of author. And I'm really bad at that. What I find myself doing is reading an author, liking them, and then going on Goodreads and then finding everything else they've written and then working my way through that list. And sometimes you find that list includes like that one short story they had in The New Yorker. <laughs> ah, yes. So do you give yourself credit for that? That counts. I tick it off in Goodreads. If it's in Goodreads, <laughs> it counts towards the Goodreads target. Talking about this makes me think that just having a count of books that you've read is a really bad type of goal, really. Like not only is there the point that you could read Middlemarch or you could read this three-page short story that was in The New Yorker. I was looking at the Apple Books app, which has got reading goals in the latest version, and their reading goals are based on time rather than number of books you've read. It defaults to setting you a reading goal of reading for five minutes every day, and like the sort of steps, it gives you streaks and ticks them off when you achieve your target. Um, And at the bottom it says, read every day, see your stats soar, and finish more books. I... (sighs) I don't know. There's that kind of suggests that seeing your stats soar <laughs> is the main thing you get from reading more. It does, yeah. Those are three interesting goals, aren't they? And all very different points, although the stats become the focus. Because the first one is actually, I think, a really useful goal if you don't have a reading habit. Setting a target that's completely achievable of reading five minutes a day would help a lot of people who struggle to read regularly and want to because it's just five minutes you don't already have to have a set time when you do it you know you could do that in the morning on your lunch break while you're cooking that's super easy but yeah see your stats soar as well as being a tongue twister it kind of gamifies reading what's the point why is reading a statistic? I just love seeing numbers go up. That's the thing I really get a buzz by. Like the books I can take or leave, but seeing integers increase, man, that's oh, the thing yeah. that really gets me going. And a lot of the ebook apps do that as well. I used to use the Kobo app and now use Kindle when I do read ebooks. And they did often pop up with a oh, night owl badge. Not necessarily quantified, but you get a badge because you're reading at nighttime. Or, yeah, you've got a streak, and so you get a different badge for that. Those badges for doing things like that, that feels like something from a video game, doesn't it? You kind of, you unlock this, like you do this weird thing and you unlock an award for it. (laughs) Yeah, it taps into the Girl Scout, Boy Scout sort of reward system, doesn't it? Which definitely, I understand. I would love to get Girl Scout badges for grown-up achievements. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of us would. But somehow a slightly ugly, badly designed graphic in an ebook reader doesn't do it for me. I think the broader point to this as well is technology, because it works in numbers, tends to push us in that direction. So the goals in a lot of reading apps and stores push us towards quantifying our reading in some way, whether it's by number of books or by time. And I think something that I find problematic about certain reading goal targets is that, like you say, with you could read Middle March or you could read a short story, you could read a book which is your absolute favourite book that really moves you or changes your life. Or you could read something that you think, that was unmemorable. And those two experiences aren't the same thing. And not many goals push us towards the experience for us. You know, even if they move beyond numbers, even if they focus on other attributes of the writer or the story, they don't try to get to how it will make us feel, what it will do for us, whether it will educate us. But you could imagine a a set of more exploratory reading goals that would be like, try and read a book that makes you laugh, try and read a book that makes you cry. It makes the hunting for the book part of the goal as well. And then you could have a really nice range and that would help you be able to choose what you want to read based on how you're feeling. You know, you could find a book that comforts you, which would be hugely important and a really useful thing actually to have on your shelf of like, I'm going through a bad time right now. That's exactly the book that I want. Or if you're feeling better, you know, find a book that challenges you makes you feel uncomfortable i mean that's a really nice idea actually it's richer isn't it than just this volume based thing like even apple's one of finish more books as if it's just about getting those words into your eyes and into your brain (laughs) maybe we shouldn't be surprised that goodreads is owned by amazon a 
you know, multinational bookstore and <laughs> Apple that are selling books on the iBookstore both want us to read more books. There's a, an incentive there. I did find a list, so I decided to go out hunting for alternate reading goal lists, and I found one from someone called Booklist Queen. And she has, I think there are quite a few of this type, but she has a list of goals that you might set that don't exactly focus on what you'll get out of it, but do try to speak to range. Some that include read more or read an own voices story. So such as an autistic person writing about their own experiences. There's also a goal on there, which is a book recommended by a colleague. There's one which is from an indie publisher, which I obviously support. (laughs) I don't set them for myself as goals per se. I don't have a kind of list of here are my 2021 goals. But something that I do try to be mindful of is which publishers I am reading to get that diversity into, especially in a year like this, be supportive of smaller companies too, and also to get that range. So I, I think there's there's a benefit in lists like that for encouraging people to think differently about reading. Oh, you're so good at these things. Like mine, mine <laughs> like find a writer you like and read everything that I've ever written and enjoy it. Okay, go on then. Do you have 2021 resolutions? Yeah, I do actually. I got into New Year's resolutions as a thing actually in the last few years. One of my reading resolutions for this year is the way I take notes and remember what's in books, because I'm really bad at reading a book, and we've spoken about this before, and I'm sure I will again, until I get better at it at least. I carry on reading books that I don't like and force myself to finish, (laughs) and at the end of it, I can't remember them at all. I take nothing from them. So part of what I want to try and do this year is, well, abandon books that I'm not getting on with, I'm getting nothing from and take better notes and do some sort of organisation with any highlights or notes I take from books so that I actually look at or use those notes. On the Kindle, you can highlight text from books. And I looked back through all the highlights I'd made on all the books I've read over the last few years, and I pulled it out into Word and I've highlighted like 150,000 words. That's kind of useless because that's like two novels and I've just got this file with two novels in it of notes. And like, if I wanted to find something in there, it's not ordered at all. It's just every book on one with the random notes in it. So I've decided to do something with that, at least organise it in some way, categorise them into themes or groups and also note down a little bit what a book was about so I don't get into that thing that I have done before of reading about a book and thinking, that sounds really good. I'll read that and then pick it up and started reading it and going, I've read this before. When you first said that it brings all your highlights together, I thought that's so helpful to have everything all in one place. But of course, that can work against it too, because you just have this giant dump of information. Versus if you, say, highlighted in a physical book, then you could go to your bookshelf and much more clearly find the relevant book. Or depending on how clear your organisation is, you could look at the notebook that you use and have a rough sense of when you read that book in the year and find it that way. But I think that's a good goal to set and something I would like to do myself as well to take more away from the reading that I'm doing. Although I've actually started it in 2021 doing that as voice notes, partially for my own benefit because it's quicker to take a voice note reading out loud, but partly because what I've really started to enjoy is sharing my reading with others. And if you have a voice note, then you can share this fun passage with people on WhatsApp. The single file with all the quotes in is quite a nice thing, actually. Like, when I was reading through it, you do get these little snippets from all different books and they all put together in one place that's really quite it delights and surprises me with the things that are in there in ways that you wouldn't get if you just had to flip through all the books I'd read and find all the highlighted passages you sort of see them butting up against one another and you also start to spot themes emerging as well I can see that there are these certain ideas that keep popping up that keep catching my attention and I only spot that when I see them all highlighted in one place. Do you think that speaks to obviously to a certain extent that'll be the fact that you're reading the works of a lot of the same readers or you're reading kind of thematically but do you think that you're also noticing notes based on your own syntactical preferences you know are you highlighting the same sorts of sentence structure or the same kind of humor across different writers yeah definitely and there's a when you see all these notes one after another it creates this sort of human hive mind effect where you forget that they're all written by different authors often different jokes seem like they could be written by the same author but obviously they're completely different in different books and i'm reading a book at the moment called artful sentences by virginia tuft i suppose it's a book about writing 
I love books about writing. Actually, one thing I've always caught on is books about writing, especially if they get slightly more into it than just don't use adjectives and avoid passive sentences, because I've heard that enough. And sometimes you need adjectives. Like, this podcast would just be called Reads if we didn't have an adjective. <laughs> sometimes you need adjectives. That's as far as I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> but this book is like a collection of her Kindle highlights, basically. And she's categorised them by the type of sentence they are. So she's got all the verb sentences together and all the, like, the noun phrases together and all of the um, adjectival usage together. And like, it's, it's fascinating reading them all like that. And she sort of talks about what people have done well with these sentences. But it does have this effect of also making it seem like they're all from the same book. You've discovered that the way one person uses adjectives, if they're using them well, is very similar to how another person uses adjectives well. Maybe maybe it's that all good sentences are alike, but all bad sentences are <laughs> unique in their misery. I think there's definitely going to be something to that, though, in that all of our language use is based on common agreement on how language works. And so in some respects, the better writer you are, the more familiar you are with how to use language in a way that makes it very accessible to the people you're writing for, easily understood by them and communicable, you know, you know, all of the rules and, and schemas it takes someone exceptionally skilled to be able to break away from that. And you have to be pretty avant-garde, you know, it's not easy to change those usual ways of doing things in a way that doesn't just fatigue the reader. You can do it badly, and then it's annoying, and that's why often books don't make it, or they don't make it past the edit, um, if they do use absolutely tons of adjectives, or if they break away from those rules because we just sort of get fatigued by them. There's a nice bit in this book that she's talking about long sentences, and she has all these really good examples of long sentences. And what she points out is that long sentences are secretly short sentences, but with little bits added onto them. <laughs> As you're reading the book, and you're reading one beautifully crafted sentence after another that just sort of all flow over you. I found myself just thinking, well, these are just sentences. This is just like what a sentence sounds like. And then she throws in a bad example of like, this is what a bad long sentence is like. And you read it and you're like, God, I can't, I just can't make my way through this. It's just impenetrable. And you suddenly realise the craft that's gone into making these long sentences seemingly invisible. A good long sentence is incredibly difficult to write because often you get those ones where you get to the end of the sentence and you can't remember really where you were at the start. Or you've had sort of numerous subjects and verbs introduced, none of which quite match up in the way that they should. So we've had two of your reading goals, resolutions for the year. The second one was to give up on books more often. Have you done that yet? Yes, I gave up on a book the other oh. day. It. I don't know whether I should name and shame it really. Um, <laughs> when you give up on books, it's about me, not about the book, I should say. Exactly. It was called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid. And it's a book that I've been seeing everywhere. Like, it's popped up my recommendations on every site I've looked at. I actually just yesterday read an interview with the author in last week's Sunday Times. And like you have seen it everywhere. So I'm aware of its premise. It was long listed for the Booker Prize. The Independent called it the Book of the Year. Waterstones had it as their Book of the Month in January. So it's been popping up everywhere. And I started it. I thought it was going to really appeal to me because like people described, <laughs> you realise there's certain words that sort of catch you when you read all the book and people described it as funny and witty and um, it's sort of got a big plot idea behind it. This idea that as a woman of colour is babysitting the child of some white parents and um, she takes the child to a shop and a security guard in the shop accuses her of abducting the child. That's the sort of inciting incident. This isn't spoiling it, this happens in the first five pages. And this sort of inciting incident kicks off a series of events. I kind of thought, yeah, like I like things that have a plot that, that spins off from uh, an idea like that. And it was fun to read and it's very easy reading. But what I found with it was it was quite plot driven and it felt like reading the treatment for a screenplay. I think it has been optioned. Already. But yeah. <laughs> this is not to say anything, any criticisms of books that do read like that because... That's a great thing for a book to be like, right? So so well described and visual that you can imagine it playing out in your head like a film. But I've realised that those sorts of books do very little for me. I want something that can only be done in a book. And I found the prose not exactly sparse, but quite straightforward. 
again, high praise really, like the words just flowed over you as if they weren't there. But there was a blandness that I found with that. And as I got about halfway through it, I kind of thought, you know what, I've got from this what I want to get from it. Yeah. And um, I'll put it down. I think that's a really, well, I think it's healthy. You know, I love giving up on books, but um, I think it's a good observation and it's not always obvious when a book is super popular or somebody recommends something that they love that it just might not speak to the kind of thing that you really enjoy reading. I think I'm a bit like you in that, I mean, I, I like interesting things that happen in the plot, but I'm much more interested in having rich characters and dialogue. I could sit with a book where nothing really happens if I like the characters, and they're just chatting in a way that feels warm and believable. Kind of, I guess, the opposite of a lot of soap opera type TV. I don't need all of the drama going on. <laughs> I just need to like spending time with the characters. Almost more sitcom than soap opera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, spending time in the world. And I suppose the fact that I was writing notes about it as I was going, or I was thinking about what I was going to write about it as well, I think prompted me to give up earlier than I would have done otherwise. Otherwise, it's a bit like, I know what I'm getting from this now. I know what's, I can see what's happening here. My notes that I write, I've decided, are private to me. The other thing that Goodreads has, of course, is a review function where you can write notes. And I thought about writing my notes in there to kind of complete the circle. But then I had this, not quite fear, it's more like social awareness that some books I'll be writing about and saying critical things that are very personal to me. The thought of the writer of that, then reading it, I felt the kind of social obligation to make sure that what I wrote was fair. I suppose also I spend a lot of my time writing things for other people or thinking what the reader of those things is going to think and how they're going to respond to them. I thought, God, I don't want to be doing that in my spare time as well. <laughs> in your notebook, you can just keep it snarky. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't have to worry about it. Exactly. It's writing purely for me, taking all that pressure away. Which, you know, setting yourself a reading goal or setting yourself goals has that thing of, oh, well, here's a hobby I like. I'll just make sure that that's got some stress attached to it. <laughs> yep. The sort of reading goals that I'm setting, I'm almost intentionally not making them work-based smart goals where you can measure them off and tick them off. Not achievable. Not realistic. <laughs> not timely. <laughs> I have a, um, a sort of vague goal about finding more books. I know last episode we spoke about how we find books to read. I had this sort of realisation after that, that loads of the reading experience for me is also a book hunting experience. Maybe everyone else knows this and this isn't a revelation to anyone else, but like when we talk about research, research really is the process of hunting for books that contain the facts that you want. Like once you find the book with what you want in it, the actual process of reading it is trivial. Similarly with reading, I find it really easy and pleasurable to read when I've found a few books that I'm really excited about and really looking forward to read. And I find it a real slog when I haven't got books I like to read. And on my, I'm, I'm down to the, the books on my bookshelf that are the ones I've been putting off. Like, <laughs> when I'm down to them, that's, that's what I need a reading goal to keep myself on my streak. Yeah. And it, it sort of doesn't feel fair to those books, does it, on the shelf? Because you're not going into them with the best expectations. It's almost better just to say, I'm sure that was a good book, but I've left it there too long it's time has passed it has soured for me there really is a window for books isn't there you find out about them and then you grab them and then if you don't read them they sort of go off it's interesting thinking about the pleasure coming from the research and that being tied into the reading because i think that a lot of people do get their reading from they get what they're going to read without doing that sort of deep dive you know, whether because they're just used to taking a recommendation from a particular friend or they're in a book group and so they read that book or they, you know, pick up the book that's on the front table in a bookshop or on the main front page of the website. But I think oh, it can be a bit of a pressure trying to go beyond that, to go beyond the obvious choices. But you're right that if you have a theme or something you're hunting for in particular, that's quite a pleasure. I don't particularly enjoy the scattergun approach, which I often find myself getting into when I want something to read of, I want something to read now, <laughs> and I need to find it really quickly. But if you do have a, a set kind of list of goals, that could be a nice way to actually make the researching process more enjoyable, a bit more of a treasure hunt. I mean, I wonder if one of the reasons people like series of books is because it just gives them another one queued up afterwards and they know what they're going to get from it. Because that's another big part of reading, isn't it? Especially if you're busy or you're stressed. 
starting a book that isn't what you were expecting it to be tonally can be super jarring. I find most often in TV and books that comes when something's listed as like a dark comedy and you really wanted the comedy and you thought, I have a dark sense of humour, that's fine. And it's not a comedy, it's a tragedy where someone occasionally makes some jokes. <laughs> You've reminded me of that stress that comes when you're at a friend's house and a box of chocolates goes round and you can only take one. <laughs> like, oh, I really want to enjoy this and I will enjoy a lot of these, but some of them I will absolutely not enjoy. And I need to pick <laughs> carefully so that I don't ruin this pleasurable experience myself. <laughs> When I finished a book and I look at my list of the books that I've queued up afterwards, I hadn't realised this until just then, but that stress is back there again. Am I really going to commit myself to, you know, six, eight hours of reading something that's the, uh, you know, the orange cream of books? (laughs) Usually the caramel for me. My parents got me for Christmas a um, customised tin of Quality Street. (laughs) On it they print Simon Street and they just pick the ones that you like. So there's no toffee pennies, there are no <laughs> coconut creams. Uh. I'd like to do that with celebrations, and then I would just have the Maltesers one and the Twix one. That is what I'm trying to do with my books this year. I'm trying to turn my books into a <laughs> customised tin. So I actually have I've been thinking, as we've been talking about my reading resolutions, and there is one that's sort of crystallising for me. I say crystallizing. It's been a long time coming. In fact, in 2018, I wrote down this note of list of Irish writers. Since I wrote that list at the end of 2018, I have read the work of one Irish writer knowingly, and she wasn't even on the list. (laughs) So more work to be done. But what's crystallized is, is why I wanted to do this. And that's to read more books by authors from or who are writing from within the places that I have lived or that I kind of belong to in some sense. I moved around a fair bit as a kid and my parents come from the UK and also from Ireland. And so the ambition there is to not lose touch with my roots by having that greater cultural connection. So it's not just all in the past through you know, a childhood connection or, or just through relatives. I haven't made progress with that resolution per se, except thank you, Marion Keys, for helping me out. Um, <laughs> that was a very enjoyable book, which was, I think it's called The Brightest Star in the Sky. That's a goal. And actually, I think it's one that will speak to your point of being quite a joy to research. No, that's a great one, actually. I've never got into the habit of reading books related to place. <laughs> Years ago, we went on holiday, and in this holiday house we were staying in, there was a book on the shelf. And I thought, ah, oh, people often go on holiday and then read a book, and then there. So I'm going to do that, I'm going to read a holiday book. And I categorised it as different from the books that I read for pleasure while I'm working <laughs> versus books that I read for pleasure while I'm on holiday, and I decided they were different categories. Yeah, well, they can be, can't they? It's by Michael Palin, and it's called Hemingway's Chair about this chair that that Hemingway had. Um, I think he used to sit on it when he was fishing. I mean, he he was fine. I would never have chosen (laughs) to read it. Um, I only read it because it was there. You shock me. I suppose it's one of a a series of books about a sort of author's thing, like Flaubert's Parrot, that Julian Barnes book. Maybe maybe I should have an aim of reading all the books that have a sort of title in a certain format. This is a challenge now. I realised the other day I'd accidentally read two or three pairs of books with the same title. So I read a graphic novel called Lost Cat, and then I read another book called Lost Cat by Mary Gateskill that was about her losing her cat. And it kind of... Maybe it's a sort of gonzo journalism exercise of reading all books with the same title to see how different authors have approached this topic of of lost cats. I was hoping you were going to say, and then I read Saves the Cat, which is the obvious follow-up to Lost Cat. So you didn't just do it because you had, like, bought a book very quickly in the Kindle shop and then it turned up and you were like, oh, crap, wrong one. Might as well read it. I did that once with um, a CD. I say I did that. I did that through my dad. As a kid, I asked him for Robin's Show Me Love, the single, on a CD, as you did at the time. And he came back with Robin S. Show Me Love. And so I now, well, I don't now, I don't have them anymore, but for a time I owned both 
singles of Show Me Love by Robin and Robin S, which are both cracking tracks, actually, so worked out okay. There's probably some mileage, isn't it? Maybe this is a <laughs> spin-off podcast we could do where we listen to things with the same name or <laughs> watch them with the same title. You could set yourself little reading challenges like that, couldn't you, to, of doing weird things like that, reading all the books that are very similar covers or all the books that are the same font in their title. I like this kind of a call and response title, though. I feel like not even just having the same, but that the titles speak to each other in an amusing way. I mean, speaking of Italo Calvino's If on the Winter's Night, The Traveller, you could try and read a series of books that established a story. You need to find a title that starts with a verb. Yeah. Yeah, or else that builds on the clause in a, a plausible way. <laughs> Challenge accepted, Simon. Well, there, was a, there was a book I was reading the other day where someone joked that they organised all of their books into rhyming couplets by title, so that as he read them on the shelf, they rhyme with each other. <laughs> That's lovely. I don't doubt that some people do that. How do you organise your books on your shelf? Oh, um, it's sort of organised chaos in that it's roughly thematic, but it's messed up by the fact that the height of my bookshelves is different. My bookshelves were built by my partner's granddad, who was not a carpenter. He did a very good job. They lasted many, many years, but the shelves are of different heights. And so while I've got one fiction bookcase, which is alphabetical by author surname, on the second shelf is where the hardbacks start because they're too tall. So it kind of goes off in that way. And then the bookcase next to that is a mix of different nonfiction. And there's actually a map section a travel writing section, a nature section. Also on there are the graphic novels, because again, size. They're thematic, and within their themes, they're by author surname. Why would you not? <laughs> you remind me of our university. The university library used to organise books in size as well. They had five letters on the spine, indicate whether they were a small book or a big book, and it was which shelf they were on. Yes, I never spent enough time getting to grips with their incredibly complicated <laughs> organisational system. And so I remember just like stalking the halls, thinking I'd found the right spot, and then I hadn't at all. I went through a phase... When I first moved into this flat of organising my books by colour. Very trendy. It's like an Instagram post. Yeah. You know what? Some people really take against that. But I think a lot of a book's function in your space is to kind of make you feel good. It's a visual object. Not as much as anything else, but when it's not being read as much as anything else. So I kind of, I've mellowed on that. Actually, I never really took against it. I think it's fine. I wouldn't do it myself because a lot of the books that I own are just a kind of scruffy cream colour. This was the problem that all of them were sort of off-white. Yeah, if you've got, is it Oxford Classics? There's one series which is just a not very inspiring kind of spine colour, so... My bookshelf now is sort of a bit of a sort of totem to my reading tastes 10 years ago when I bought a Kindle. <laughs> there was a phase I went through of sort of putting the books on the shelf. Not exactly as like the way you'd mount a deer's head on the wall to prove you'd killed it, but as a sort of like something to indicate that I'd defeated them. There is something of that, isn't there? Especially with a chunky book. I kind of like, look, here it is. It's a trophy. Or do you find then, though, that if you haven't got through it, which is the case with a lot of my chunky books, there's a kind of shame of having it on the shelf because it commands so much attention. Like I've got Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies, which is huge and gold because I have the hardback. <laughs> and so it's the most eye-catching thing. And I have two copies, both received in the same Christmas. <laughs> so they just... Shout at me. It's that thing when someone comes around and looks at your bookshelf and says, oh, you've got this. What did you think of that? And you have to say, I haven't read it. Yeah, I'm not, not quite sure about that. That's there for decorative purposes. <laughs> That's all my hopes and dreams and failed reading goals. I was thinking, actually, of having a reading goal of reorganising my books. I might be moving in the next month or so, so that might be time for me to take all my books off the shelf and find a new way of organising them. I moved house last year during the lockdown, the first possible weekend when you could move house, and so it really ate into all of my time. I was very, like, thinking I would get rid of loads of things before moving, and then, of course, all the charity shops were closed, so I couldn't do that. Yeah, trying to sort your books before you move 
if you have a lot of physical books is it's a big task yeah i didn't have a lot of love for my books that month i've got to say i'm kind of glad that <laughs> 200 plus books on my kindle i'm just i can lift with one hand rather than all those boxes you know it's good exercise but you have that guilt of i own an awful lot of stuff when you've carried 20 boxes of books <laughs> have you thought of setting a reading goal of reading all of your owned but unread books <laughs> No, Simon, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> They're unread for a reason. <laughs> I mean, I have thought of it. So yes, is the answer to your question. The first lockdown, I came to my um, support bubble, my partner's mum's house, and I brought the very chunky hardback again, The Goldfinch by Donna Tart with me. Last year, that was a definite. I'm going to read books that I already have. The bookshops have closed so perfect times. And instead, I just read lots of Agatha Christie's off of her bookcase. You were at least reading books that were unread on a bookcase that was nearby to you. I was, yeah. I mean, they had been read before because they were, oh, these fantastic. They were actually her mum's collection of Agatha Christie's. So most of them were printed in the 40s to 60s. Yeah, really wonderful old paperbacks. And there's something really pleasurable too about reading a copy of a book that someone completely out of your time you've not met has read as well. But anyway, I'm not making that same mistake again. I have a goal of reading the books that I was gifted for Christmas. And I received three books for Christmas. But they're all books that I had mentioned, you know, with a wink wink, I'd quite like to get this book for Christmas. So if I don't manage them, I'm sort of doing something a bit wrong. <laughs> she says, when we get to the end of the year, and they're all still to be read. Maybe this podcast is the first of a two-part series when we can do a second part this time next year and see how we got <laughs> on with our goals. I think I've cannily not committed to anything. Oh, actually, insofar as I've committed to anything, um, two of them overlap because one of the books that I received for Christmas is written by an Irish writer. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> two goals two for one. struck down in a single book. <laughs> Do you think reading goals generally as a thing are a good thing then or a bad thing? I think that they... I think they're a good or a bad thing for the individual, depending on that person and whether they are motivated extrinsically or intrinsically, which is to say whether the presence of other people also setting goals is motivational for them or whether it comes from their own impetus. So I think it can be useful for individuals depending on the way in which they're motivated. I think it can be useful for people, for communities, the book selling, writing, reading community, in that a lot of people do use goals, I think, to come together. You know, they share their goals, they talk about the same books, and maybe they set some of the same goals, and so that means they have some overlap in books that they can talk about with their friends. I don't think it's harmful, except insofar as it could risk creating a monoculture, or it could risk putting people off if they're setting goals that don't really motivate them in the right way. There's that tweet that you sent to me of somebody setting their reading goals and saying, isn't this great, I'm going to add a load of stress into my <laughs> <laughs> relaxing hobby now. Yeah, it's something that we all do when I think we're so used to being productive and high achieving and, you know, from our clubs at school, often turn things that should be fun into things to be good at. There's a thing behind reading goals, the way that you're reading right now isn't good enough and you need to change it in some way, whether that's like you're not reading enough or you're not reading regularly enough. But the goal is sort of suggests that there is a better way of reading and that by doing this you can head towards it. Sort of reading self-improvement. So that's kind of why I feel like if people are uncertain about setting their own reading goals, it's important just to be mindful of why you're doing it, if you need to do it. It's kind of like with any New Year's resolution. I've traditionally been against them because I think January is just a crap time to try to do anything new. Like if I had September resolutions, that would work well for me. But yeah, the sense that you can put pressure on yourself by reference to not being good enough. That's not a really helpful way to set goals. And I think if that's where you're coming from, then it's best just ditching the goals and carrying on as you are. But if you do feel genuinely like you would like to be reading more, you'd like to be reading different things, then it is worth setting a goal. Like sometimes you might think, I'm not doing things well enough. That could come from a genuine place, you know, and if you make an improvement or you make a change, then you could be happier. You know, I actually saw something on Instagram this month. It was kind of touching on self-care, which has obviously been a big trend over the last couple of years and is largely a very positive thing. But this person said, 
just remember that self-care sometimes does mean that doing things that you don't feel like doing because often you can do things you don't feel like doing like you know getting out for some exercise and then you feel really good that's a long way to say like reading goals could be like that if you genuinely aren't happy with the way you're reading at the moment but I don't think they should be like an annual I have to always be setting myself goals in a very rigid way because that just implies like it's never good enough and I'm always reaching for something different like sometimes for all my joy of giving up on books I do just need to push myself to keep going with them and then I enjoy it in the end. I wonder if my fear of abandoning books actually comes from a that I'm terrified that it will get good on the next page and if I give up now I'll give up just before it gets really good and I'll miss out on that. Sometimes that's true. I have stopped books for a long time and thought I might give this up and then I pick it back up again and then it gets really good. <laughs> But I guess if it does happen and you have given up on it, then you won't know. So you don't know you've missed out, so it's fine. Obviously, when you buy physical books, you have a kind of literal TBR pile, a to-be-read pile, and you have that sort of physical reminder of what books you're going to read soon, hopefully. Given you read primarily, exclusively on ebook, do you have that same sense of reading what's on your bookshelf or reading ebooks immediately after buying them? Yeah, so I think them being digital makes it even easier actually to accrue a long backlog because my backlog of unread books is now so long that I've subdivided it into collections based on <laughs> fiction and non-fiction. <laughs> So I looked at it the other day, actually, and I've got yeah, 100 unread fiction books and just over 100 unread non-fiction books on my list to read still. What happens is I finish a book and then either there's a book that I know I want to read straight away, in which case I'll go and read that one. And usually that's the most recent one I put on there, because as we were saying earlier on about books sort of going out of date, you get them thinking, I'd like to read that. And then six months later, you've forgotten why you ever downloaded it or why you ever bought it. If there isn't a particular book that has whetted my appetite that I'm going to dive into, this podcast is called Bad Reads, remember, and we are the bad readers. I will then browse through the list of all the books on my Kindle and look for the shortest one and start reading that. (laughs) I think what's emerging is that we both actually do need to set ourselves better reading goals for the rest of the year. (laughs) That's what's clear. After all this chat, (laughs) we need some direction. We're just stumbling around in the dark, wading through piles of unread, unloved books. But I suppose it's there's a, a question here about what are good goals to set, and like, we've discussed a few there, but I would be interested in any that anyone else has. So if anyone uh, has any good reading goals, feel free to tweet them at us, um, and we can then pick and choose whether we want to apply them. <laughs> yes, we would love to steal your good reading goals, or to commiserate with your failed reading goals for the year. Speaking of reading, I am going to go back to the book I'm reading at the moment. And I have started reading two books at the same time now. Oh, wow. You're taking all my bad habits. Yes, I'm moving my way through that <laughs> virtuous career, aren't I? I now have a book that I read, a sort of non-fiction book that I read, and I have a fiction book that I read. And then depending on the time and the location. Interesting. Do you have particular times and locations where you choose one or the other? Yeah, very much so. So if I'm in bed, it's fiction. And if it's before six o'clock, then it's non-fiction. Okay, so within the sort of generally accepted working day, it's a non-fiction reading time. Until you asked us then, I hadn't realised I had this non-fiction curfew, <laughs> sort of watershed moment. <laughs> what about on the weekend? That six o'clock thing is a weekend date as well. Yeah, non-fiction before 6pm. Okay, holiday? Yeah, it's always always that. It's the sort of thing that I've got now. I don't know why that is. It's one of my many weird oddities about time. Like, I can't watch TV in the morning. Oh, yeah. It's like alcohol. Like, watching TV in the morning is like cracking open a beer. It does feel like it, because you're just going to be on the couch all day with either of those habits. <laughs> and foods as well. That's the other one. Like, you have to have breakfast food if it's before midday. No crisps, no alcohol, no TV before midday. No chocolate. Yeah, no chocolate. Mm-mm. A weird set of rules I've established to myself that are completely unspoken and unwritten, but I absolutely notice <laughs> when someone's breaking them or suggests that I break them, and I, a look of horror kind of crosses my face if somebody says, do you want this chocolate? Like, it's, it's 10 o'clock, are you mad? <laughs> when I came to your new house and I saw your reading nook, that's probably the most jealous I've ever been of anyone else's possessions of all time. So I think... 
I probably have one <laughs> reading adjacent goal as well this year, which is after I move, I will establish a reading nook. Yeah, it is a lovely luxury, but I would definitely recommend it. Your reading nook, for people who haven't seen it, described in my idealised terms here, is this little corner of your room and you've put <laughs> two sort of lowish bookshelves there and a comfy chair and a reading table. It's got that kind of slight thing of a nice hotel where they have a very nice chair and a little alcove. <laughs> Except yeah. unlike those hotel chairs that are there for purely decorative purposes, this one looks like you just want to sit in it straight away and start reading. I like that hotel comparison because it's in a space that's sort of a through space. You've just come up the stairs and you're walking <laughs> into the kitchen. And so it's trying to grab you on your way and convince you to sit down and read instead of doing anything else. That's the way to make your reading goals fly by. Just have a reading nook. I mean, the ideal for me would be having a hammock. But the reading nook is only so big, so... (laughs) (laughs) I like about it that it's a reading zone. Like, not only has it got a chair for reading, but the books are also there. You realise as you go past it that you're entering a zone of reading. I read a few years ago a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it had... Actually, I would say it had a pretty big impact on a few of my habits. I'm not, unlike you, a terribly routine-driven person, or at least I'm not often very aware of my routines, and so I can feel a bit out of control of them. And since reading his book, I have become a much more regular runner, which has been a really positive thing for my mental health. Not a very good runner, but it's been a really nice habit to develop. And one of the things that he talks about is to make it easy to do them. Getting the kit out so that you have the clothes ready to go in the morning and having a time so that you don't have to think about when you're going to do it and allow yourself the chance to back out. And with reading, I guess I sort of did that in having a space because slightly set away from the rest of the living room where the TV just kind of can't help but dominate. You know, if you have that, I'm sat on the couch, I turn the TV on, connection, it's pretty hard to break that sometimes and read. So even if it's just the tiniest corner of your living room or bedroom, you have a bookcase there and a book or a cushion, which is where you sit to read. It kind of makes that habit obvious and easy. I haven't read Atomic Habits, but I think it's one of those books that I've heard other people talking about. And does he talk about like habit chaining as well, like doing one habit and then leading on to the next one? Yeah. So one good habit goes into another and that could be exercise and healthy eating or yeah, you could chain something that you find easy to do with something that you want to achieve. So I guess with reading, it could be something that you already enjoy, like, I don't know, sitting down to have a glass of wine in the evening with reading. I found actually that food has been quite a good trigger of habits. So as I've mentioned before, and I will no doubt mention again, last year, one of the things that I was trying to do was read The New Yorker, which I bring up a lot because that's a big undertaking. <laughs> it dominates your life. <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah, I think, you know, you could talk about that till the end times now. You've owned it. I think one of my habits this year might be to not read The New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> but what I used to do was on Mondays when it came out, I used to pour a glass of whiskey and drink The New Yorker. Drink The New Yorker with my eyes and read the whiskey with my mouth. What I found was the taste and smell and thought of whiskey was then triggering me to think, oh, I need to sit down and read some long-form journalism now. (laughs) The sort of Pavlovian conditioning of that. A whiskey within New Yorker feels like a very appropriate connection as well, doesn't it? It started during lockdown when I found this. I was going through my cupboard and trying to use up all my leftover ingredients and I found a bottle of whiskey (laughs) at the back. I thought, well, I never drink whiskey, so I'll use this up. And as a result of that, now I buy whiskey. (laughs) Anyway, all of that is to say... I have two books on the go at the moment. One of them is the one we mentioned, Artful Sentences, the one about the select of different sentences and the sort of analysis on style. Mm-hmm. And the other one, the fiction one, is um, called Problems by Jane Sharma, which I saw recommended on a, a blog article by a writer I like. And it's <laughs> they described it as um, a fast, quick, uproariously funny read. Um, would you like to guess how many times <laughs> I've laughed out loud at this book? <laughs> I am guessing it's no time. Slightly less than one, yeah. It's about a woman's... Well, she's got a heroin addiction and is in an unhappy relationship and she's having an affair and her partner oscillates between perfect and abusive. Oh, yeah, that sounds uproariously funny. So it's, so it's a laugh a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but despite that description, it's the humour comes from her sort of 
character's voice, which is very, it's one of those books that's very much in her voice, which is, you know, acerbic and dry and witty and well realised in that way. I have to admit, I've, I'm finding it's like slightly darkly depressing more than, more than laugh out loud funny. Um, but it is a short book, so <laughs> that was why I read it next on my Kindle, you see. Well, I am reading, I was going to say I'm reading two books. I will amend that to I am actively reading two books because several are ongoing or open but have not been read in a number of weeks. But I've not committed yet to not finishing them. And the two books that I'm reading are both novels at the moment. One is If on a Winter's Night, A Traveller by Italo Calvino, which is a great postmodernist novel, one that you recommended. And I I decided, because it has winter in the title, that it would be a seasonal read and I would save it to the winter. So having bought it early last year... I've been waiting. And as it turns out, I could have just asked you, it's not seasonal at all. (laughs) In fact, it's really not grounded in any one particular place or time or reality. That serves me. (laughs) And the other one is Amor Tolls, A Gentleman in Moscow, which a couple of people have recommended to me. I am perhaps more slowly working through it than the recommendations would have led me to believe I would read it. I don't really understand why. It's quite a nice novel and it's an interesting. It definitely has parallels without any spoilers, but it definitely has some parallels with readers who are currently in lockdown of one form or another. But I can't quite put my finger on why I'm reading slowly. Other than perhaps, you know, just like it's still a really weird time, isn't it? And sometimes you just want to watch absolute junk on TV instead of committing the energy to reading. So I have been watching Bridgerton. <laughs> also slowly though, I again, that's it was the satisfying easy watch and then midway through there's a, a something happens which means you can't just keep engaged in that light mode, something more serious happens. So I've stopped because that's not what I was looking for, but I again will go back to it. I had to move on to a home decoration show which is really, really bad, but... I know where I stand with it. <laughs> Someone uh, saw the other day used this phrase that they said was a horrible jargon phrase, but I kind of loved it. Um, this idea that at different times we have different need states, or we are in different need states, like we need different things, and different bits of cultural content will fulfil those those needs at different mm. times. You know what? It is jargony, but I quite like that because I think the word needs, people can sort of take that to be a more permanent thing than it is and need states touches on the temporality of your needs or even the fact that they can shift day to day or hour to hour or in this case for almost an entire year (laughs) (laughs) well i think we've reached that part of the podcast where we say you can subscribe on itunes and everywhere else we asked everyone to give us five stars regardless of whether they like the episode or not (laughs) and we tell people to support us through our patreon but we don't have a patreon so we can't do that (laughs) yeah and if you want to write snarky comments don't put it in the reviews put it in your journal like we do (laughs) (laughs) that's all we have time for this episode You can see a list of the books that we talked about and read full show notes at our website, badreads.co.uk.